are Locked On Pelicans, your daily New Orleans Pelicans podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to another edition of Locked On Pelicans, the daily podcast covering your favorite team, the New Orleans Pelicans in NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Pelicans Insider, credential member of the media, Jake Madison, at Nola Jake on Twitter, here with y'all on this Monday, kicking off a week's worth of podcast as we gear up for the NBA season. Starting now in like 23 days, it is coming Pretty quickly, I cannot wait. I know you cannot wait either. Training camp basically is starting this week. Preseason is less than two weeks away, and then we hit the start of the regular season. So a lot to cover today. I want to look at the three-point shooting of this team and Lonzo Ball in particular and his role when it comes into some of that stuff. I also want to look at the salary cap a little bit. An interesting move going down with the Boston Celtics and the Charlotte Hornets in terms of Gordon Hayward. I talked a little bit about this last week. I'm going to rant about it again on today's show. And then I want to look at some of the future picks the Pelicans have, particularly within relation to the Boston Celtics and the war chest they had for very many years and seeing how they managed to use it or didn't use it. And I think that's important to keep in mind when it comes to New Orleans here too. So let's dive into it all in today's edition of Locked On Pelicans. So let's take a look at this Pelicans roster, in particular their three-point shooting, and if this could be a problem going into next season or not. With bigs like Steven Adams and Zion Williamson, you are going to need three-point shooting out there on the court to space it for them a little bit, though I think it won't be as bad with Steven Adams, and I don't think some of the spacing woes, like I don't think you need a stretch big next to Zion Williamson at all time, and they're still trying to figure out what lineups and situations he works best in but three-point shooting is going to be an important thing because it's just important in terms of the modern NBA right so they lost each one more they've lost Drew Holiday how has the three-point shooting changed and this is a team that finished with the seventh most three-point attempts last season and the seventh best three-point percent last season 37 percent on the season they were taking on average, 37 three-point shots per game. It's a lot. That's good volume. That's good percentage numbers, too. It's one thing to, say, rank in the top five in terms of three-point volume, but make them in a bottom 10, let's say, uh, clip percentage there, and how much gravity then do you really have, or are teams just daring you to shoot, and you're bricking your shots and not making them pay for that. So finding the right combination of volume and percentage, I think, is valuable. You know, I'd rather have that. You could even have them be a top five team and rank 10th in three-point percentage. And I think that's a good mixture right there. So that's what you're looking for. But losing a guy like Etuan Moore, losing a guy in Drew Holiday can hurt you in terms of three-point percentage. But Drew Holiday only took two three, uh, um, only made two threes per game. Etuan Moore wasn't doing a ton more than that. He was only making one three per game. It's three threes. That's nine points. I think that's something that the Pelicans can make up. And when you look at this team and what the likely starting lineup is going to be of Lonzo Ball, of um, Eric Bledsoe, Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, and Steven Adams, I do think you could have enough three-point shooting in that lineup that it's not going to be terrible out there. 
I think you get enough three-point shooting from Lonzo Ball. You'll get just enough, I think, from Eric Bledsoe, who shot 34% last season, making more threes per game than each one more did. It's different uh, minutes and everything, but still. Um, that's not a terrible uh, percentage to have. And then Lonzo Ball is kind of key to some of this, particularly if he's working a little bit more off-ball and more of a shooting guard role in the half court. He's a pretty good three-point shooter right now. And this is why I'm not willing to write him off just yet. I know a lot of people are ready to move on from him, want to trade him for anything. Look, this guy who took six threes per game last season and made him at 37.5%. When you look at his numbers on the B-Ball Index tool that I use and go check it out, $5 a month for all of these really great player profiles, he ranks and grades out as a good three-point shooter. His uh, percentage last season grades out as a B-plus amongst all players. He's a positive and a good three-point shooter in every situation where he's not just pulling up. So those step-back threes he takes when it's dribble, 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 step-back, shoot it, that doesn't work, and he's not good at that. But as a catch-and-shoot guy, as an above-the-break three when he gets the ball and can launch it, he's good with that. And there's a lot of three-point gravity with him, too. And he grades out as an A in the 90th percentile in terms of three-point gravity. So teams are sticking to him on the perimeter, which is in stark contrast to what we saw just two seasons ago. I remember game when, what, he shot 15 threes against New Orleans and they just dared him to shoot. He made three of them. And you're going to take that every single time. If you have him taking 15 threes in a game, there's a likelihood he's going to make five or six of them. And all of a sudden, he's really impacted the game in a positive way. So in the half court, I do think he can be a useful player. I'm also looking at him in terms of his free throw percentage this year. I'm convinced that's the reason why he doesn't drive. I was the first person to harp on this the moment that trade got done, basically. It's not that he just lacks the aggression to drive in the half court. And each one more two seasons ago had more drives than he did. It's that I think he doesn't want to get fouled and go to the line because he shoots a pretty poor number there. But look what he did with his three-point shot this past season. He jumped this up from 33% to 37.5%. He did that after uh, shooting 30.5% his rookie year. It's a significant improvement from years one to years three. And if he can make that improvement on a harder shot in terms of a three-point shot, he should be able to make, you would hope he would be able to make that improvement on his free throw stroke as well. And so if he's able to do that, and get that free throw percentage up 60, 70, 80%, I think you'll see more aggression from him. You need to see that more aggression from him because he's very limited in the half court otherwise, and he might be relegated to just connecting passes around the perimeter and to shooting three-pointers, and you'd like a little bit more than that out of him, even though I think that's a useful skill set, but he is definitely capable of improving, and I'm not willing to write him off just yet. I think he can be a key guy for the Pelicans in the half court. And the three-point shooting alone might do it when you're somewhat limited there. But Brandon Ingram is a good three-point shooter still. Josh Hart off the bench is above average. I wouldn't necessarily call him good. Nikhil Alexander-Walker certainly shows the willingness to shoot, even if that shot's not always falling. And if his three-point percentage improves this season for New Orleans, he's going to look like a very different player. I think that's one thing that made him look a little bit worse than he actually was. And I liked a lot of what I saw out of Nikhil last season. But he wasn't shooting the ball particularly 
well. And if he does get that to drop a little bit more, he's going to look significantly better. So I think there could be enough three-point shooting here in New Orleans to not really make me worry about a whole lot. Today's episode of Locked On Pelicans brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever. Something I spend my own money on. I eat one of these every single day for lunch. And you know what? They taste so good that I actually look forward to eating one of these things after I work out. They come in unbelievable flavors. Caramel brownie, cookies and cream, lemon to almond, cheesecake, double chocolate, salted caramel. I could go on and on and on. These things are covered in 100% real chocolate. They're soft. They're easy to chew. They're not like any protein bar you've ever tried before and these things uh, one they're not like any protein bar you've tried before for the taste but also when you look at the calorie count how low in sugar they are high in protein high in fiber yet they're better than every other bar out there on the market 19 grams of protein and 180 calories 5 grams sugar 5 grams net carbs or just uh, 130 calories along with 17 grams of protein still a lot 4 grams sugar 4 grams net carb it's not going to waste all the cardio that you did give built bar try and go to builtbar.com today and use the promo code locked on and you're going to get 20% off your next order that's promo code locked on for 20% off at builtbar.com so later today stan van gundy and david griffin are going to be addressing the media kind of in lieu of a traditional media day i'm assuming we'll get other player interviews as well we'll break down everything they say on tomorrow's show i'll see if i can pull some of the audio too for, to play that for you if there's anything that's particularly interesting though we kind of have an idea of what they're going to say and they just spoke to the media after the draft as well but kind of on the eve of training camp the start of the regular season and coming all of that coming basically uh we're going to get to hear their thoughts we'll break it all down for you here on tomorrow's edition of locked on pelicans so gordon hayward's going to be officially a charlotte hornet very very soon but despite having the cap space to sign him they this deal didn't get done right away and it's a little bit confusing but it's showing a trend in the nba this offseason one i don't like i spoke about this last week and i want to talk about it a little bit more because this one's just as egregious in my opinion and that's the, the need to create trade exceptions, help opponents out when all you're doing is signing a guy into the cap room that you have. You saw this with the Atlanta Hawks and Danilo Gallinari as well. So the Boston Celtics, Charlotte Hornets thing is strange because, the, again, the Celtics have enough room to sign Gordon Hayward to the contract that they were going to sign him to. And the Boston Celtics basically were going to lose him for nothing which is something we're going to talk about in the next segment too, along with the former war chest of assets that they have. And I promise you there's a larger point here so they were gonna lose him for nothing and it sucks it happens right sometimes guys just leave and sign with other teams in free agency it's how it goes that's what happened with david west and the old new orleans hornets he just left and signed with the indiana pacers and new orleans didn't get anything in return for him because that's how free agency is designed to work sometimes you lose guys to other teams but now teams are so worried about losing players for nothing. You trade them potentially prematurely. This is kind of what maybe happened with the Oklahoma City Thunder and James Harden and why he ended up in Houston. And you, you feel like you just need to get something in return for them. Again, I think some of this is a sunk cost fallacy. We just let them go. 
Now, if you're doing a sign and trade, which is what this Charlotte Hornets and Boston Celtics deal is turning into, usually it's just you sign the player, you trade him to the other team. There's limits on all of that, and you have to match salary. So you've got to send players back. You've got to send picks back to make it kind of worth their while for taking on those contracts that they probably don't want to take on in the first place. And it's how it goes. It's what happened when LeBron James moved to Miami from the Cleveland Cavaliers originally. It was a sign and trade deal. And so the Heat gave up a first-round pick for the signed-and-traded player to make it all work so that LeBron James could get as much money as possible. Well, in this Gordon Hayward, uh, Charlotte Hornets deal with the Boston Celtics, in terms of signing and trading Gordon Hayward, which is what this is being, Boston is also sending two second-round picks to Charlotte. Two second-round picks to Charlotte with a player that they're getting. What? Like, what the hell is this, right? It's so that Boston can create a trade exception. If you don't know what a trade exception is, and I've talked about this a lot, I realize not everyone understands it. It's basically you get this placeholder where you can absorb someone's contract onto your books without giving up anything. Basically, it's just a way to bring another player onto your team. You saw this most recently with the Golden State Warriors absorbing Kelly Oubre Jr.'s contract in trade. They're over the salary cap. They normally would have to send out matching salary to be able to do it, and they didn't get it, you know, and they didn't need to. So it's a way just to add players. They rarely matter. You rarely see teams use this. I see people ask me this on Twitter all the time during trade season. Can we get anyone with a trade exception that the Pelicans might have? These trade exceptions usually last for a year. And no, it it just doesn't happen because teams rarely just want to bring on more salary like that. And teams want something in return for a player and they're not looking looking to usually just offload a bunch of money kind of like that. They're, They're very rarely used, but you're seeing them kind of in vogue right now. I think because of the lack of tons of movement in free agency, um, unless you're the Detroit Pistons, because it just wasn't an exciting class. And maybe the pandemic's putting a crunch on teams and they do want to dump some salary. But I don't like the way it's being used now. So Boston traded two second round picks to Charlotte so that they could create a trade exception, the largest in NBA history to the tune of $27 million um, or something like that, if they want to try and add someone later by just like bringing them into that. A team wants to dump a player for whatever reason. Boss is like, you know what? We don't hate that player. We like that player. Let's throw him into the trade exception. And they paid two second round picks to create that to a team that already had cap space that didn't need to do anything like this. Charlotte shouldn't have these two extra second round picks. Boston shouldn't have the trade exception. And basically, if you have the cap space to sign a player, you should not be allowed to get uh, to set this up as a sign in trade. The Hawks had the money to sign Danio Gallinari, and instead they did a signing trade with the Oklahoma City Thunder so the Thunder could get a trade exception because the Thunder want that trade exception to absorb a bad contract and tie it with a first-round pick. So someone sends a first-round pick and a bad contract to the team for that, uh, basically just to get rid of it. This isn't how the salary cap should work, and this does hurt teams like New Orleans who either can't kind of play that way or have the ability to. It's it's just one of these situations where this isn't what the salary cap is set up to do, where if you lose a guy in free agency, you just lose him. It's kind of how it goes, and this is kind of circumventing some of that. So I dislike what we're seeing go on here with the salary cap kind of circumvention, and that's what I said last week. Why does the salary cap matter then? Every team can get around this stuff, right? There's no reason you should be signing and trading a guy into cap space for another team. Like, just none. Sorry, it doesn't usually, it shouldn't work that way. 
Now that the sign and trade rules basically mean it's the same amount of money they would get if they just signed with the team. It used to be a little bit different, but that's eliminating. I do not see the point of this other than teams helping each other out, which great. But if you're the NBA, is that exactly what you want? And isn't the salary cap there to kind of limit some of this? All right, coming up a little bit more on the Boston Celtics, I want to take a look at the the war chest of assets they had in the past tense. And what came of it? Not as much as you might think. And what does that mean for New Orleans going forward with all the future picks that they have? All of that coming up here in just a second on Locked On Pelicans. Don't forget to check out Locked On NBA on Mondays. Josh Lloyd, host of our widely popular Locked On Fantasy Basketball podcast, takes you around the NBA's major headlines with the help of our local experts. Subscribe to Locked On NBA wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, wrapping up today's show, looking at future picks. This comes from a question um, that I got for the mailbag the other day that I liked, but I wanted to look at it in terms of a larger uh, conversation of things because the Boston Celtics have had future draft picks for years and years and years, but that's fine. They finally have run out of them. If you look at their like future picks that they have, they don't owe any other future picks than their own. No additional first round picks. They had three first round picks in this past draft. They had three the year before, before trading one of those. Um, a couple of years ago, they had two and two. They've had a lot of future first round picks. But they never really did anything other than draft players with that. Look, drafting players isn't necessarily a bad thing to do with your draft picks, right? But that wasn't why Danny Ainge acquired all of those picks. They were trying to swing for a superstar, whether it was Anthony Davis or what have you. And it never really happened past Kyrie Irving a number of years ago. So when you look at that, it seems like it was a bit of a failure on the Celtics to not actively use those and turn those into something that would have been greater than some of the picks that they made. And look, don't get me wrong, that worked out with drafting Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Um, but Yavisele, who they took in the first round back in 2016, like fine. When you look at some of the rest of their drafts, it's not exactly the most exciting thing. So you can argue, and as I've said, draft beca- draft picks become less valuable when they become actual players. Well, then maybe they haven't done as good a, a job as they could have, and they missed out on some value there and the superstar player that really is what helps your team more than anything. You know, if you look at 2019, they took Romeo Langford and Grant Williams. O- okay. They did end up making a trade there, moving one of them in this past draft, three first round picks as well. And while I think their pick of Aaron Naismith at 14 is a fine pick, Peyton Pritchard and then Desmond Bain, who eventually was traded to Memphis, I don't know. So they ultimately didn't get nearly the value that they could have. And so when it comes to the Pelicans, one of the things I hope they don't do in the future is hoard these first round picks. Because if you don't actually move them or you can't get a deal done and they become drafted players, I'm less sure about that. You know, I'd much rather give up that 2023 future first for Steven Adams, potentially. I still think they gave up maybe a little bit too much for him uh, in terms of second round picks and other things like that. But overall, like moving one of those picks, I don't mind that whatsoever to bring in a player that, you know, can help you right away and is much more of a sure thing potentially than some of these draft picks in the late first round might be. And when you look at the draft picks that the Pelicans have, the Lakers and the Bucks picks in the future, which of the two would you most be willing to give up? And I would trade those Lakers picks if you know you're not going to be able to get a superstar. It doesn't look like you're going to be able to get a superstar, Bradley Beal, someone else. Move those Lakers picks 
Those Lakers picks aren't going to be valuable in the future. We've talked about this. Them winning the title changes the trajectory of that franchise big time and in a way that doesn't make those picks any better. LeBron might retire and those picks outlast him, but they're still going to have Anthony Davis there and it's the Lakers. They're still going to get people who want to go play for that team and are going to force their way there. Or if they ever somehow have cap space again, I don't think they will, they'll get big name free agents because it's Los Angeles and it's just unfortunately how it works. Like that's just kind of how it goes in the NBA with that team and with some of these big uh, market uh, teams. And look, Anthony Davis is just going to be 28 next year. In four years, he's going to be 32 and he's going to still be really, really good. That team isn't going away anytime soon whatsoever. And they actually look like they're competently run by Rob Polinka right now. They had a really good offseason. If you can move those future Lakers firsts in some sort of deal to upgrade now or move one with Lonzo Ball for some other young player you like better, you do that deal in a damn second. So you've got to be able to use those first-round picks in trades before that draft actually comes up and not just hoard them to hoard them. It's kind of fun to say we have all the future first-round picks, right? But that doesn't matter if you don't actually do anything with them. Drafting players is one thing. I've said, throw enough mud at the wall and hopefully some of that mud will stick. And the more mud you throw, the more chance some of it will stick. It's not also the surest thing. You also need to do something with those picks because Boston didn't. They ended up coming out of this okay because they drafted well in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, but they they missed. They missed on having all of those assets and all of the promise of what they should have done, and they didn't end up with that big difference-making player like they needed to use those picks to get. They got cute when it came to Anthony Davis and missed out on him and missed out potentially on a title because of that. If the Pelicans do the same thing, it's wasting Zion. So you've got to get aggressive with those future first-round picks. Start shopping them now. Uh, you know, if especially uh, those Lakers ones, because I don't think they're going to be very good in the future. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Locked on Pelicans. Thank you all for listening. As always, I'm your host, Jake Madison, at Nola Jake on Twitter. And we'll be back with you all tomorrow to break down what Griff and Stan Van Gundy say.